We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So we've been looking at the attributes of the people of Taqwa and the first two attributes we looked at is that they believe in the unseen and that they establish Salah. And Omar, so now we're... Omar, you, you said remind you uh, to talk about the 10th of Ramadan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, let me just finish this opening and then we'll talk about uh, the 10th of Ramadan. We're supposed to do that for the other class too, but that's fine. Uh, but it's good that you reminded me for this one. I forgot about that one. Okay. So the first two attributes we looked at are is belief in the unseen and establishment of Salah. And then the next attributes that we're looking at today, depending upon time, <laughs> is so the people of Taqwa. And again, all this is coming from eyes two through five of al-Baqarah is belief in the unseen, iman bil-ghayb, establish events of Salah. And then the bulk of our discussion is going to be on this third one. They spend of what we have bestowed upon them. Okay, so we're gonna come back to this. And so thank you, Dr. Malahat for reminding me of this other point I want you to draw our attention to. So what fast number is this, are we, are we on? This is 11. This is 11. Okay, nice mushroom. This is 11, man. Okay. So uh, a quick lesson in terms of the, uh, or her, uh, let's see this way from explain this. Okay. So we have the narration attributed to the prophet, peace be upon him. So this is separate from, from talking about the, the chronic lecture, but this can help us get a sense of where we are right now. Uh, we're taught uh, the narration uh, that is considered to be not necessarily authentic, but it's still a wisdom, that the first 10 days of Ramadan is what? Anybody remember from the narration? <laughs> it's a period of Rahma. Second? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Third, salvation from Jahannam. So the gates of heaven are open. Okay, so what is taking place in your first 10 days of fasting? And this is where all of you are. No, no, not all of you. There's a reason why I'm pushing myself. There's, uh, this is where everyone who's fasted essentially 10 days in a row is. So those of you who fasted 10 days in a row, you're on fast 11. What's happening is you are being reduced to your real personality. So what am I saying here? That the analogy in the Quran of fasting is the analogy of traveling, sa'iha, to be like a tourist in a, in a particular place. And so imagine you're on a road trip outside of Ramadan. Imagine you're on a road trip for 15 straight hours. 
How are you going to feel at the end of your road trip? You're going to feel completely tired. And then you go sleep in a motel hotel, relax, eat and such. You get up in the next day, you're on the road trip again. Are you going to feel at the end of the second day, even more depleted? And the third day, fourth day, fifth day, even more depleted. And so what happens after about a week and a half of this is you're being reduced to your real personality. What does that mean? When you and I are interacting with each other, we're only showing the highlights of our personality to each other. And, and so imagine the version of you that you show in a professional environment, you're only showing a small portion of yourself. When you're with your friends, they see more of you. When you're with your closest friends and your closest family, they see much, much more of you, including all of your contradictions, all of your hopes, all of your fears, everything. And then there's a version of you that's alone that you don't share with anyone else. And maybe you do look at that person or maybe you don't. But the point is that when you and I are with each other, we're only showing a piece of our personality. So believe it or not, I'm not as cool as I am in this class all the time. No, actually I am, but that's beside the point. But the point here is that you're showing the fluff of your personality, but fasting day after day after day after day, you're, you don't have the strength to keep that up. And you're being exposed to what you really are. So after a week and a half of fasting, you're beginning to see what you need to work on. So in the period after the week and a half, then start looking at where your where's your mind going? You know, what do you find yourself thinking about? Whether it's about Allah, about yourself, about people, optimism, pessimism, happiness, sloth, depression, anxiety, all those things, doubt. And so when we speak of the second phase, the phase of Mavafirah, the phase of seeking forgiveness, you're identifying what you need to work on. And then when we speak of the third phase as the phase of the gates of paradise opening up, there's a narration attributed to the prophet, peace be upon him, when he was on the night journey, that he, you know, as we know, he's in Jerusalem, he leaves everyone in prayer, then he goes up and sees the levels of hell and heaven, in heaven, he meets Ibrahim Islam, Prophet Abraham, who tells him, tell your people that paradise is an empty field. And what you plant in it is what you do in this dunya, in this worldly life. And so then what happens is that you're looking forward to figure out what am I going to work on? What am I going to focus on? So that when I go through Ramadan again, I go through this cycle again of being exposed to my real self. But now I've fixed something, even if it's a little bit. So then I get exposed to things that are even deeper. So for example, in just general American Islam, what are the big issues? Just like in American society, big issues are anger, uh, ingratitude, doubt, sloth, you know, chauvinism, prejudice. You'll see it all. If you have these in you, it's going to be exposed after about a week and a half of, of, of fasting. If you're someone who doesn't normally fast throughout the whole year. And, and so, or I should say, doesn't do long periods of consecutive days. And so then you're looking at the space in between the two Ramadans to figure out, all right, here's an issue I have. Let's say it's ingratitude. I'm going to work on my gratitude. And I'm going to make that my, my, one of my fundamental projects for the next 11 months. So that when I go through Ramadan again, 
and I go through this cycle again because shaitan is also locked up and exposed to things that are even deeper. And then I go through it again year after year. I'm getting exposed to things that are even deeper. So one point is that one of the blessings of in the household that not necessarily everyone is going to be making all the fasts at the same time because of either monthly period, sickness, travel, is that if multiple people have anger as their problem, they're all not going to clash on the same day. So the point is, whenever you're doing about a week, a week and a half of fasting, whether it starts from the first day of the fast or even not until a week and a half into the fast, look at you know what your personality is like, look at what your mind is like, look at what your heart is like after about a week and a half. As a technique to figure out what you need to work on. As part of the, as part of the process of self-introspection. A funny point, is this the best time to go to Tarabi because Tarawih, because this is when all the uncles can't stop from losing their tempers if they hear one wrong word in, in, in the prayer. And so, I mean, exciting things happen. So yeah, I've seen many, many exciting things happen. I literally have gone to, to, to Tarawi on these particular times of the month just to you know enjoy some excitement. I mean, I can, I can tell you some funny stories, especially there's one specific suburb in Chicago that I'm not going to name because people are going to get offended um, that I used to live in that uh, would have the weirdest things happening on the nights. In any case, so so that was the point here, that once you've gone through about a week, week and a half of fasting, you're being exposed to what you really need to work on. Let's conduct the introspective show. Thank you, Dr. Malahath, for reminding me. Okay. So now, having said that, bringing us back to the, the Quran lesson, so they spend of what we have bestowed upon them. First, easy question. Someone explain to us this use of we. If we believe in one God, then how does the we fit in here? Easy question. It's a royal we. Yeah, the royal we. Uh, I don't know who is speaking number 1937. Uh, yeah, and so this is the technique of rhetoric. Uh, we have similar uh, techniques across different languages. So, for example, uh, if in Spanish, if I was speaking to you informally, what pronoun would I use? Two. Two. And if I was speaking to you formally, what pronoun would I use? Usted. Usted. Oh, side point, where does usted come from? Any ideas, anyone? Maybe usted? Yeah. I don't know. Yes. So, so yeah, and so we have different pronoun usages depending upon the the, the context, the level of respect, tu or vu in French, and so in in Urdu we have me or hum. You know, if I want to speak about myself informally, I would say me. If I want to speak about myself formally, I would say hum. Hamara nam Omar. You know, it's, I sound like a king when I'm saying that. Our name is Omar. So this is what we also find in the Quran. But we also find that it is not only Allah who uses the we in the Quran. That if we go to Surah Al-Kahf, Surah 18, around Ayah 80-81, we see Khidr, the person that Musa alayhi salam is going to, he is also speaking of himself in the royal we. And I believe there's also, I'm uh, vaguely, uh, I'm forgetting at the moment, there's a place where Ibrahim, Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, uses the royal we to speak about himself. 
So at one level, this usage of we is a rhetorical device. And it's often associating, uh, it's often invoking a sense of majesty. And very often related to that, we see this idea of we when Allah is giving something. Like what we see in this ayah. He, they spend of what we have bestowed upon them. So that's just a small uh, technical point about, about the language usage of the Quran itself. That you see this usage of we, and very often it's Allah speaking as a, uh, in our understanding, the way a king would speak providing, or a king's generosity. Uh, Shayla. Um, so I read a book, a really great book about Islam. It's called The Vision of Islam. Yeah. Um, and in that book, it speaks about Tanzi and Tasbi. Right? Yeah. So Tashbi. Yeah. So the, the closeness and the distance of Allah. So is this kind of more related to kind of the, like you say, the majesty or the distance? Mm. Um, does that tie into that, do you think? It can. So, so the idea of Tashbi is when we can make things that are sort of like analogies. And so, and the way I'm speaking here of Allah conducting himself the way we would understand a king, that would be what we would understand as Tashbi. And the Tanzi would be those things that, you know, we can't even come up with an analogy. Like the Allah is the king of all the kings. So it would be, it would fit in the same universe. You know. um, let me know if that, if that makes sense, inshallah. So <clears throat> they spend, the attribute of the people of Taqwa is they spend of what we have bestowed upon them. Another term here is infaq. Uh, one second. Okay, so in fact, here is to spend to the point of exhaustion. That the attribute of the people of Taqwa is not just that they give, is that they're giving to the point of exhaustion. And you can read this exhaustion in a couple of ways. One is exhaustion of energy and another is exhaustion of wealth to give. Now, again, I'm emphasizing what you see on the screen. These are not commands. So the ayah is not saying you have to believe in the unseen. You have to establish salah. You have to give to the point of exhaustion. Meaning, I don't want you to leave this class and immediately uh, round up all of your savings, everything, and then donate it. And then you're broke. You don't have any food for tomorrow. No, what we're saying is that these are attributes of the people of Taqwa. And this is akin to what we think of the Prophet, may peace be upon him, right? That if anyone came to him, if he had something to give, he would give. And this is also when we think of the great, the great figures in our history. So what is the story of Zainal Abedin? That they found out after he passed away, that he was feeding every night 150 families and yet still lived in himself in some type of what we would regard as poverty. And so the people of Taqwa, one part of this is that they give to the point of exhaustion. And the point that I've been emphasizing is look through the level of relationships 
this is central to the to the experience of a relationship, which is that you're being generous. But then the second half is also how are they understanding their wealth? They see their wealth as being given to them. So maybe I'm the one who gets up in the morning, I'm the one who gets ready, I'm the one who puts in all the hours, the exhausting hours at work. But fundamentally, Allah is the one who's given me the air to be able to do any of this. And it could have been that whatever method I used to wake up didn't work, the alarm or just my internal alarm clock. And so Allah Ta'ala still is making all those things work. So they're also understanding, they're really regarding all that they possess as coming from Allah. Which as an intellectual concept, I think we all uh, understand easily. But this is something that they have internalized. Now, when is it difficult for people to, to give? So let's say, you know, let's say uh, from, you know, all my years of teaching, I've saved huge amounts of money because the teachers have paid a lot, mashallah. And, and so someone comes to me asking for money and I can easily afford it and I can try and I trust that the person is going to use the money for whatever they say and it's something beneficial, but something's holding me back. What is often holding a person back from giving? Nifak. Okay, so hypocrisy, okay, which is then in this context, what? It's attachment to the wealth. What else? So people have the fear of losing what they need. So it could be that I didn't need this money for the last 10 years, yet I'm afraid I might need the money tomorrow, right? Even though I haven't needed it for 10 years. And so that essentially is part of the essence of greed. That is part of the essence of selfishness. You know, that when someone is trying to acquire and acquire and acquire, it's to be safe in case I need the money, right? So I feel protected when I have all this money. So, so when someone has something in abundance, right? Yeah. Um, uh, whether it's wealth, uh, whether it is health, right? So that person will be very careful uh, to be protective, uh, protective of his health so that he can go to gym and et cetera, but don't do something uh, out of his uh, like uh, protection cycle. And similarly for the wealth, because if you have wealth, so he might have planned like for rest of a year or two years that I, this, this is what I, I will do. So he will be locked in that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I would say essentially, I mean, if you look at your health as wealth, then you're definitely gonna to try to protect it. If you look at your health as something you can lose, then you're going to try to protect it, right? If you're taking your health for granted, then you might behave in all kinds of behaviors that are not good for good for your health, whether it's sleeping or consuming something or this and that, right? Um, and so, so yeah, so protecting our assets. And so, what am I saying? That at the core of seeking to protect our assets is that we're trying to protect ourselves. Yeah. And then we're looking at the wealth as as a protection yep. but the people of taqwa are understanding what that not only is the wealth bestowed or here let me rewrite this a different way that the people of taqwa are understanding that bestowed on me bestowed on them is not just their wealth but also the struggles that they get hit with 
So think about what we're saying here. That the people of Taqwa are understanding that, okay, the wealth that I have is specific amount uh, given to me by, by the divine. And it, that is exactly the nature of struggle. So the source of my wealth is also the source of my struggles, which means that if I give you this money today and I don't have the money tomorrow, if Allah hits me with a struggle, I'm still going to be okay. And so part of the idea of the people of Taqwa is that they are generous upon generous. But then they also have this understanding of how reality operates, that my wealth has come from, from not me. Especially the wider you make the big picture. So take anyone who is millionaire, billionaire, etc. At some point, there's some lucky breaks in there, right? Uh, you know, whether we're talking about any of these these big people. So an easy example would be would be Facebook. I mean, they called you know when 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 these tech billionaires were 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 rising up, they're literally called the accidental billionaires. And so, so every one of us. If you look at your biographies, if you are living in a certain type of, of privilege and such, there's some aspect of that that was not earn, earned. And this does not discount all the effort that you or I put into what we're, 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 we're doing to earn whatever we put on the table and such, but there's a certain amount of that that is actually given that is beyond our control. Either that you were raised could be related to, you know, you know all, all the uh, identity features, you know, gender, orientation, color, race, religion, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And so the people of Taqwa then understand that their whole wealth is given, but also look at struggle the same way, which means that I'm not going to withhold wealth out of a fear of struggle. Naturally, if I have a bill coming tomorrow, for $300 and all I have to my, to my savings are $350 at most, I'm going to give you 50. But in terms of, of unexpected things, people have confidence. And again, I'm not telling you to give away all your wealth. There is an ayah that comes much later in the same surah where the companions ask the prophet peace upon him, how much should we give? And then the answer is surplus. And also maybe in this economy, you may not have any surplus. So, so the point here is that this is another aspect of the people of Taqwa. It's, it's attribute number three, but as you see, it's two attributes. One is the generosity and two is an understanding of, of what they possess. Okay, fourth attribute of the people of Taqwa is that they believe in the revelation sent out to the prophet, peace be upon him. And here the prophet isn't named. It basically is saying the revelation sent to you. And then they believe in the revelation sent to those before you. And this is number five. So for those who are not in the, the previous class, the, the, the five o'clock class, what is sent down to the prophet? Semi-easy question. Anyone? 
Jibril. Well, Jibril is sending it down. But what is being sent down? So so the prophet, peace be upon him, is receiving two types of revelation. One is what we call recited. And the other is called non-recited. Recited revelation is the Quran. Non-recited revelation is the Sunnah plus what is found in the Hadith literature. So the Sunnah and the Hadith are not the same thing, except in one school of law, which is the Hanbali school. The Sunnah is one thing that the Prophet is being taught. And then the Hadith is narrations about anything people are observing about him. So the point is that he didn't only receive the Quran, he received the Quran and then the Sunnah. So this, I think, uh, there isn't really as much to, to discuss about this. The point I'd like you to consider that you're going to hear from me over and over again is that you can't separate the Prophet from the Quran. That the, the, uh, if I was the companion at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, 100% of my Islam is coming through this one person. And then it may inspire me to, to move beyond myself and look at nature and such, but it's all coming from the Prophet himself, peace be upon him. And then secondarily, it might be coming from other people who are also getting it from him. And so what's coming from the prophet, from his mouth, some of that is Quran recitation, separate from other conversation and such and other, other things that he says. What's coming from his actions is what we would call the sunnah. And then we would categorize the sunnahs as those that are prescribed or not prescribed or those that are repeated practices or seem to be one-time things and such. Okay. And then the last attribute is they are certain of the hereafter. So the hereafter we, we've been speaking about, but we'll speak about more in a second, and there's certain of it. So first, let us talk about life itself. And I don't think we've had this discussion about the phases of life. Actually, this is the wrong. Uh, okay, if you go through all the material, uh, yeah, Shella will talk about that. Oh, yeah, I should have uh, spoken about that. Uh, uh, in fact, yeah, let's talk about that first. You know, I'm jumping the gun here. Okay, so they they also believe in the revelation sent down to those before him. So we'll put the Akhira conversation on hold for a second. So first again, uh, the simple questions. According to our tradition, how many prophets are there? And then how many messengers are there? 
313 and 124,000. Yeah, so 124,000 prophets, 313 messengers. Is that number important? I'd say for our purposes, that number may as well be arbitrary, except to say that, that every corner of the world has received prophets. But why does it seem that when we look at the prophets that are named in the Quran, almost all of them are of the Middle East? Any thoughts? Reflections and possibly why? If we're saying every nation in history has received prophets, then it would be fair potentially to argue that the regions we today call the Americas, Africa, etc., etc., they've all had prophets. But when we look at the 20 some names that are in the Quran, most of them are people that are somewhere in the realm of the Middle East. Okay, so Malah has explained your point further, primarily to uh, people to address from Hijaz. What does that mean? Because the, the Prophet is actually is, uh, focusing on the, the primary people who's from the Arab area, the Hijaz area. So mm -hmm. all the examples has been used for that area specifically. So, so the Quran itself is speaking and existing in a specific point in history. Right, it's, it's, it's existing in a very specific time and place. And one example of that is that it's not just in Arabic, it's in a specific dialect of Arabic. Or Hijazi Bedouin. Today, we might call it modern standard Arabic or classical Arabic, but it's in a specific dialect. And so the point I'm making is that the fact that it's in a specific dialect of Arabic is already placing it in a specific moment of history. And so a lot of the questions that we raise about social matters at the time of the Quran versus today are natural questions because it's in a different time and place. So when the Quran says, when you're taking out a loan, have two men or one man and two women. Okay. In terms of our American ears, we're gonna think, huh? You know, but it is speaking in a particular time and place, and that prescription was actually radical for that time and place. And so, not only that, it's speaking primarily to the prophet himself. Now, again, this is a point that all of you understand intellectually, but I'm really trying to get us to internalize that the Quran that we're reading, the Quran that we're reciting, as this miracle from God to the prophet, peace be upon him, that we're taught are literally the most beautiful words ever heard or spoken. When it comes to the issue of practice, or starting positioning itself in a particular time and place. So even other issues like in paradise, when uh, how is paradise often described in the Quran? Anything? Give me, give me any attributes of paradise. River flows beneath. Uh, can you repeat that? Uh, well, I'm probably hearing you. River flows beneath. That's yeah, one. So, so gardens beneath which rivers flow. If I'm living in the desert, that's going to be something appealing to me. If I'm living in Bangladesh during monsoon season, that's not going to be very appealing to me. Right. Or think of other attributes of, of paradise 
it sounds like it's speaking primarily to Arab men, isn't it? And so the point is, yeah, it is absolutely speaking to a particular real world context. But that does not mean that it's, it's real world limitation. It does mean that it requires interpretation. So for example, when the Quran says that you're gonna have these fair maiden uh, virgins in paradise, seems like it's speaking to heterosexual men. Right. Does that mean it's not there for everyone else? No, but it's speaking in a specific language to a specific population first. So the point I'm making is that a lot of those issues uh, that we get concerned about in terms of, of social relevance are absolutely valid uh, questions that necessitate interpretation. And that's why we have all these sciences of interpretation that have grown from the Quran that we talked about way in the first day of class. It's to understand how to universalize the text. So when the Quran speaks, you know, of those whom your right hands possess, you know, it's think about what, what, the, what that ayah is saying, or when it speaks of, you know, Mary two, three or four, or when it speaks of, of just, you know, kill them wherever you find them. It's speaking to a particular context in a particular time, changing that population, but then it becomes an act of interpretation for to see how do I apply it to me in Chicago in 2021. So a lot of times we will say the Quran is for all times in place. It is, but by way of interpretation, meaning the principles can be extracted from the text for that interpretation. Jella. So is all of it applicable at all times to everybody? No, or is it fair opposite. to say, well, yeah. I thought you're saying that with interpretation, like, you know, those who your right hand possess or all these verses that like, I mean, at least when I'm reading it, I can't kind of tend to like scan over those parts and say, that's not applicable to me nowadays, you know, mm -hmm. that's of the past. But are you saying that we should try and figure out that there's a message in there for us nowadays mm. or no. So, so effectively the like second a part deeper of what you level. said, the part of the second part of what you said, yeah, I'm, I'm saying that. So what I'm saying is that if I try to take the Quran as it is and apply that as it is for all time and place, the only context I'd be able to do that in would be a context in which people are speaking that dialect of Arabic. But if I'm trying to apply to Chicago already, issue number one is that I'm going to be translating it into, into local English, or I have to get everybody around me to, to learn that uh, level of Arabic, which then means what? Just to have any access to it, it is an act of interpretation to get it from the Arabic into my language or to get me to understand Arabic, which then means, secondarily, all the content is subject to interpretation. Now, do I need to interpret all the passages? Not necessarily. That there will be passages that just may not be relevant to my life. You know, so if I'm living in 2021 in suburban America, the passages on war are probably completely irrelevant to my life. And then by extension, the passages on concubines and, and so forth and so on. Uh, but it could be that somebody in a different part of the world, it might be relevant. So let me know if that makes sense or if I. It does. And I know that, you know, certainly I 
do that. I think a lot of us do that, that say like, okay, this was talking to them. But isn't there also danger, for instance, to say like, oh, when it speaks about prayers, maybe, you know, that was relevant to the people back then, Mm -hmm. but now I don't have to. Or fasting was speaking to people back then. So where do you draw that line, right? So that's, that's a, a, so yeah, if we took this to this logical conclusion, then I could potentially say, yeah, none of it applies to me, right? And what I have that I call Islam is these other things that I invent. That could also happen. And so that's then the purpose of the Islamic sciences. It's to figure out how do we have consistent answers, you know, and relevant and answers that have integrity. So, for example, in the schools of Islamic law, uh, one category would be the acts of worship. And the default approach for acts of worship is you try not to change them because they are beyond rationality. Why do we do... Ramadan is the ninth month of the year rather than the first month. You know, why do we have two prostrations in each unit of prayer rather than four or zero? And so it's beyond rationality. So there, the assumptions for acts of worship, you don't change anything. But for matters of social interaction, financial transactions, governance, one of the questions is what we call the questions of Daman and Makan, time and place. Then you're negotiating the text with how do you do things in your particular society? And so what I'm saying is by law itself in its construction, it is saying that your practice of Islam is an active interpretation of what took place in that generation. So what is the overall point I'm making for everyone else, for everyone, for everyone here, is that when we're speaking of the Quran being for all time and place, uh, it is with interpretation. And what is part of the assumption here is that the tools of interpretation or the starting point of the tools of interpretation are also provided for us in the text. So for example, if we were to look at the ayah, you can look at this on your own time because I don't want to take up too much more time, is if you go to the ayah on taking out loans, this is Surah 2, ayah 282. It says that if you're going to take out a loan, then get subscribed to write it down but the person who's taking out the loan dictate the terms and bring witnesses, two men or one man and two women in case a woman struggle. And, and then don't let the witnesses and scribes get hurt. And then it says, this is better for you if you only knew and it removes doubt or it reduces doubt. So we even have the, the principle for why this is being prescribed. Which then means if we have a system of taking out loans in our society that fulfills what the ayah is saying, it's saying that this is the more just way, this is the more the way to remove doubt, then it may be that the way you do things in your society, which might be different than the text of the Quran, the way you do things in your society might be sufficient. So, sure. yeah, go for it, Iqbal. And, and, and Iqbal, I'm listening while I'm also trying to catch up with the chats. Go ahead. Well, what I was like then arguing that so in, in in modern America we can have a witness as a two women for example if there is any transaction and we don't find a man. Okay. Uh, so what I'm saying is that in America, uh, in America in 2021, the witness of a man and a woman is the same. If we had this conversation 60 years ago, not necessarily. And and so then on top of that, I can also go online and get a loan that does not even involve any humans. 
where I can literally go to chase.com right now and get a loan that involves no humans in the process. But uh, is it reported? Yes. And so is the, uh, is the event itself considered to be witnessed? Yeah, by the way, it's recorded and verified and such without involving human beings. Is it fair? Well, I don't have to go to Chase. Maybe I can go to Citibank. Maybe I can go to someone else. This is before getting to the issue of RIBA or anything like that. I'm saying I have the marketplace to choose from, so potentially it's also fair too. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but becomes... if, if we create the same scenario, so for example, if you go to rural America, and obviously the rural America is totally doing the, the, the transaction totally different than we doing over here. So it's still the same thing applies? The, the same process of interpretation applies. And, and so we would look at how do you th do things in your particular society and does it work? Does it seem to fulfill the principles in the Quran? Okay. So what are we saying here is that the principles that we're deriving are universal. Does that make sense? Yeah. And another example would be crime and punishment. Uh, I don't think any of you have have chopped off anyone's hands for someone that's stolen something from you. I don't think any of you plan. Well, maybe some, I mean, some of you might plan to do that, but, but aside from that, uh, the point is that we still believe in a system of punishment for theft. Uh, with all its flaws and such, uh, we are still following some sort of principles. Okay, so again, what is the point that we're making here is what is the Quran? The Quran is a fixed text revealed in a particular audience that we then apply to our lives by way of interpretation. And there's always interpretation involved, even when we'd like to say that it's universal. The universal part is, is in deriving universal interpretations. Okay, now then what does that make that different versus the other previous prophets and such? That in our lens, their messages were for their specific people not to be expanded beyond those generations. So it's saying one thing that was unique about the prophet, peace be upon him, is that the Quran is for him and then to be fought for all times and places. But that was not necessarily the case, for example, of the Torah and the gospels and the previous books. Okay, so one point that we're making, according to our tradition, is that the previous books were relevant for their time and place, but not meant to be universalized. I mean, the only one where that's really an issue is the Gospels anyway. Because the Torah is primarily for, for Jews, whereas Christianity is an evangelical tradition. And so, uh, Shala. So there are many parts of like the gospel, I don't know if it's considered the gospel, but the Psalms, right? Mm -hmm. Like David's Psalms that are still very universal and very inspiring. And I would argue that they are very relevant today to Muslims if we would mm -hmm. read them. Um, so you're just saying that not all of the book is meant for us today, right? So, I so again, like, how do we how do we decide, you know, as Muslims, what is relevant, what is not relevant? Yeah, for those yeah. books. This is a, this is another really, really important question. So, so let's take a, a step back and then give you more foundations to this. So, yeah, in case you haven't 
another yet. I really like drawing arrows for whatever reason. So I'm going to draw another arrow. So this is something we discussed in the five o'clock class. Uh, and so apologies again on the repetition for those of you who are in this class. Okay, so according to Islam, when does Islam begin? With whom? Easy question, but trick question. Adam de Islam. We'll solve the key again this one. Okay. The beginning uh, of time, Adam and Eve. Yes, exactly. Although someone raised the point in the other class, well, weren't there jinns of this world? So maybe Islam is even before them, but we'll, we'll stick with the human race. Okay. And so then what else are we saying? That Ibrahim, Nuh, Ismail, Ishaq, you know, so forth and so on, Dawood. Suleiman, and then um, we'll jump forward. It was Musa, Musa, Isa, Muhammad. They are all prophets of Islam. Yes. Musa according to our tradition. Say it again. Musa is before Dawud al-Islam. Yeah, yeah. And so don't worry as much about the chronology that I've written, but just from memory. Um, that uh, they're all prophets of Islam. And so, for example, Musa is not, according to our tradition, a prophet of Judaism. It means, for example, if Musa is bringing Islam, then that which we call Judaism is a branch off or an offshoot of Islam, which is the complete inverse of how we teach in our society when we say that Christianity and Islam are offshoots of Judaism. Right, take this a step further, that in the Quran, in Surah 2 that we're studying, although we won't get to it, we have the children of Israel who are the companions of Moses. What religion then is their religion? If they're the companions of Moses, peace be upon him. Muslim. It would be Islam or whatever we would call Islam at that time, you know, because Islam is an Arabic word as opposed to a Hebrew word. Good. So, likewise, that Isa, he's coming teaching Islam. Nobody says that Isa was a Christian, right? And most people say he's Jewish or he's Hebrew. And then Christianity, we would say, is an offshoot of Islam, an offshoot of what he's teaching, not necessarily preserving what he's teaching. Right. Okay. Now the question becomes <laughs> of, and so this is now getting to your question, Shala, of what we have today of their materials. Uh, what is the use for us of their materials? And so the argument would be that it would be useful as reference, but official guidance, it would be only the Quran. So what, how do we distinguish this? So there's this story, there's a narration where Omar is reading passages from the Torah. And the prophet asks him, you know, what are you reading or why are you reading that? And I'm paraphrasing. And Omar says, I'm reading this to learn. And the prophet then says, if Musa was alive today, he would be following me. So you would follow the Quran. And so uh, I wholeheartedly agree 
that there are passages, not just in the Psalms, but even in, in the Gospels and the Old Testament that are very, very useful for us. But we would just not categorize them as guidance. And so think of guidance as like guidance with an A-L at the beginning, Al-Hidayah. See what I'm saying? That uh, uh, I think there are passages, for example, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, material that's very, very beneficial for Muslims. We would just not put it in the same category as guidance in the way we do as the Quran and Sunnah. And so it's sort of like saying, uh, I can also benefit from the writings of Aristotle. And much of the entirety of Islamic Western uh, sciences are built on Aristotle. Shella, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that many people throughout time can be inspired by God, you know, write beautiful poems, for instance, you know, praising God. And I, we can use those as value, you know, whatever, if they bring us closer to Allah, that's wonderful. And so like, you know, I gave the example like of Rumi's poetry, right? So the Psalms, we can kind of see as like Rumi's poetry, right? So inspired by God, but not necessarily, you know, direct guidance like the Quran, right? Yes, that is exactly the key point. And to support your point, we have this narration of the prophet, peace be upon him, where he says, wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever you find it, you take it. And so, so that is to be taken as an invitation that read all the literatures of everyone and that which is of benefit, claim it. You know, but the difference between that and guidance is that guidance would be something that is unfiltered coming from God. And that would be the Quran of the Sunnah. But even then we're saying we still have to interpret that material too in terms of its application. So another way to think about it is that if there's something in those other texts that say you have to do this, which we find especially in the Torah, you'd say, no, the Quran is overridden it, but we can still derive wisdom from it. So the Psalms doesn't have much in terms of actual prescriptions. You must do this, you must do that in the way that the Torah does. And we'd say the, the obligation to obey is expired. But the wisdoms of those texts are still are still potentially beneficial. Okay. So and yeah, like uh, like the points that we can find uh, a lot of rich material, uh, as Malach is saying, in terms of the Hindu literature and such. And this is what we do find in the history of our tradition, right? That uh, uh, that the scholars were literally going through the sources of 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 of, of, of texts and such. And so so these hundred thousand prophets and such at one level we're basically saying that these were all people who were sent as prophets of islam and then what is islam islam is fundamentally no god but god uh, no god but god coming final prophet in the day of judgment that's essentially what islam is in, in, in the most simple sense and then the messengers are those that also received scripture to deliver. So that's at one level to understand this. But then let's make the fun level, the really interesting part. So once again, who is the primary audience of the Quran? 
Anyway, right there on the screen. Okay, the primary audience of the Quran is the Prophet, peace be upon him, just like on the screen right there, right? Okay, and all of the stories of previous prophets are lessons for him first about the struggles that his peers in history had to go through. Moses, peace be upon him, Shu'aib, peace be upon him, Lut, peace be upon him, Ibrahim, so forth and so on. Maryam, alayhi salam. So what we're saying here, and this is a more of a fun point to think about uh, in terms of what it means, is that all of the previous prophets and messengers are all pieces of the final product, which is Muhammad in the Quran. Which means all the previous prophets are pieces of Muhammad. Peace be upon him. So, for example, the da'wah of Noah, that's what's emphasized in the Quran. It's a piece of Prophet Muhammad and his da'wah. The struggles of Yusuf alayhi salam. So when is when is the Prophet peace be upon him received according to some narrations, Surah Yusuf? So first, uh, the Prophet has is coming home from Taif, and you all know the story. He's trying to call on the people, and you know, there's the people of Taif, they send their kids to start whipping him with stones to the point that he's bloodied and he stops and he's heading back home and he's saying to Allah, Ya Allah, am I doing something wrong? Are you upset with me? And then he receives Suri Yusuf. And then what is Suri Yusuf the story of? He is getting rejected by his brother, by his brothers, who then dump him in a well. And then he gets purchased. He gets found in the well. He gets sold into slavery. And then he gets purchased. And then he gets falsely accused by the wife of the Aziz. And he gets sent to prison for years. And then eventually he is released and eventually he's vindicated of, of the crimes and eventually he becomes a treasurer of the land and such. And so Yusuf alayhi salam, his story is part of the story of the prophet. Yaqub, the father of Yusuf, who has to have the, have the perseverance to know truth will succeed. He's also part of the prophet, peace be upon him. So this is almost gonna sound like mystical language here, but what we're saying essentially is that when we think of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, all of these previous people that are in the Quran are in terms of their story, they're all part of him. The piety, the faith of Maryam So what we're saying is part of the design of the human experience, you know, from Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, all the way to the prophet, peace be upon him, it is everything is being, the stage is being set by Allah, the creator, for the arrival and being of the prophet, peace be upon him. So think back to a point I made earlier, that one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, most valuable rahmas that Allah has put upon us is the Prophet himself. 
So how do we put this, this idea into practice? What we're saying is that the closer you can get to the prophet, peace be upon him, the closer you're getting to God, the closer you're getting to the prophet, peace be upon him, the closer you are manifesting mercy in your life. Okay, thoughts, reflections? So I thought of something, um, yeah. I thought of a verse in the Quran where it says um, something like, we have sent this as a guidance confirming that which came before. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if there's a second part to that that says like cl something like clarifying that which they disputed, something like that. So yeah, there are a number of passages like that, like near the yeah. two or three, but yeah. Yeah. So I just thought of it like, you know, kind of to that we can take from those other um, sources what's consistent with what's taught in the Quran. For instance, in the Torah, you know, it says not to eat pork and in the Quran it says the same thing. So, you know, that's been consistent. That's just a simple example. Yeah, I would say that for practice. Yeah. But if we're speaking from the perspective of wisdom, then the whole text is, is available for wisdom. You know, even when it contradicts the Quran, the text is still there as a source of wisdom. Now, one of the issues is that we're, we're using what we believe is, you know, the remnants of the Torah. And so for wisdom on an operating life, seek that from everything, especially from, from books that may have contained scripture in them. So for example, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not the gospel, uh, not the Injil, but there's a lot of wisdom uh, that can be taken from them. The stronger, however, someone is in their foundations in the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, then the, the more focused they'll be in terms of what is uh, a benefit and shown. But yeah, I mean, ours is a, is a literate tradition. And what I mean by that is that the, the cultures of anyone uh, has sacred in it and can be appreciated and, and benefit can be taken from it. Any culture in any time and place, including today, including here. All right. Any other last questions or thoughts? So, Maniam's uh, uh, connection to Rasulullah Can you elaborate on that a little bit? So, tell me, tell me some points about the story of Maryam alayha salam in the Quran. Any any bits of, of her story? Uh, giving birth to Prophet Isa and uh, leaving the community, going isolation, delivering the baby. Okay, so some of those you, you gave interpretation, some of those you gave facts. So what would be the equivalent of Maryam alayhi salam bringing Isa alayhi salam? What would be the, the relationship of Maryam giving birth to Jesus, peace be upon them? How would that relate to the Prophet, peace be upon him? That the Prophet is delivering the Quran to the people. Right. And that Maryam, her faith is so high uh, to the point that it's even, you know, astounding people around her. And so her story is also part of the story of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Does it make sense? And then on top of that, uh, especially in the early part of the prophethood of the prophet, peace be upon him, you know, whether we're speaking about going to the cave or 
just him on his own in his relationship with Allah. That's very much what we see in Maryam. You know, like uh, Aisha is reported to have said that, um, you know, and every night every lover goes to their lover, but the Prophet goes to, to, to Allah. Right. And then we all know the narration where the Prophet, peace be upon him, is, 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 or Aisha wakes up and she sees the Prophet, peace be upon him, and he's been praying and his feet are swollen and his beard is wet from tears. And, and then she's asking, why are you doing this? Your sins are all forgiven. And he's saying, should I not be grateful for what Allah has given me? And that gives us a taste of what Maryam is like in seclusion. And Maryam's story gives us a taste of what the Prophet is like in his private time. Does it make sense, Akbar? No. Yeah, exactly. And then think of Musa, peace be upon him, with the companions. There's a hadith where the Prophet literally says, you know, that he wishes that he had the patience of Musa, you know, which I think is really, really interesting. And so think of all the things Musa Islam had to face and had to deal with. And that's, uh, you know, that's in the story of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in terms of all he has to deal with with his people, Sahaba as well as the Quraysh. When Zakaria would ask her where she would get her fruits from, yeah, when she was in shower, she would refund it from Allah, yeah, absolutely. And so the Prophet is literally saying, you know, that Allah feeds me, like in tahajjud, he is feeding me. And then there's a type of, of fasting, this is relevant for Ramadan, and I forgot what it's called, I think it's a, uh, 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 I gotta look it up again, where people would skip iftar, they would do like a couple of days for iftar, and then continue fasting all the way through the next day. And the Prophet peace be upon him would say, okay, number one, I'm stronger than all of you. But Allah feeds me from places where he doesn't feed you. Telling people, okay, no, don't overdo it in terms of the fasting. And that is akin to what Samina has, has quoted about Maryam getting food from, from the beyond. So if you look at every story, oh, this is Boston. Yeah, Boston has to take credit, you know, rather than give his wife credit there on the screen. Anyway, so uh, so every story you're looking in the Quran of a previous prophet, one way you can look at it is it's a recording of history with lessons for us, and that is correct. Another way is you're getting a taste of the prophet, peace be upon him, through another person, through another uh, uh, major figure. Okay, any other questions? We're way over time, so I'm sorry for holding you back. Uh, I also heard an interpretation of the Prophet was Bashiran Sawiyah that he that visited Mary in the Surah. Uh, that's possible. That's really getting into like the mystical narrations and such. And so Allah knows best. You know, that the majority opinion uh, to Late's question is that it's Jibreel uh, who's visiting Maryam. Uh, whether it's the Prophet Muhammad himself, that's beyond uh, anything that I have a reference to, to confirm, but Allah knows best. All righty. So we'll stop right here. And so again, in sum, what are we overall talking about? We're talking about attributes of the people of Taqwa. We talked about the generosity as well as understanding how reality operates in terms of wealth as well as struggle. And then we touched here on the previous revelations and how they even relate to the prophet himself, peace be upon him. And so tomorrow, inshallah, we'll have a fun discussion about certainty about the hereafter. And so think in advance about whatever it is in this world that you are absolutely certain of and we'll test it, inshallah, tomorrow.
Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma glory to you, O Allah. Wa bihamdika praise and gratitude to you. Nashadu illa ilaha illa anta. We bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka wa seek your forgiveness. Wa natubu ilayk and we turn to you. All right, Malatal word to you all, inshallah. And we'll see you inshallah tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.